Happy Sunday and thank you for joining me this weekend here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. All right. In June of 1972, four men were caught and subsequently arrested for breaking into the Watergate headquarters at the Democratic National Committee. Four days after that suspicious break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters, something big happened. In response to that break-in at the DNC, the chairman of the DNC sued the committee to re-elect the president. It was still very early on in, in this break-in, and, and, and they were reporting about it as well. But DNC Chairman Lawrence O'Brien went right there. He was serious about this too. He implicated the president of the United States in that break-in. And of course, this quickly became national news. Lawrence O'Brien, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, today filed suit for $1 million against the committee for the re-election of the president and against five men arrested early Saturday who were charged with breaking into the party's national headquarters at the Watergate in Washington. Carl Stern has a report. I wish to emphasize as national chairman of this party the deadly seriousness with which we view this entire matter. I am pleased to note that the FBI is investigating this case. But I am shocked to learn that the White House, through its official spokesman, deems unworthy of notice this blatant act of political espionage. Famed criminal lawyer Edward Bennett Williams, whose law firm represents O'Brien, will try to question the five intruders a week from tomorrow and to take depositions even inside the committee to re-elect the president and the White House. Two of the intruders had the name and phone number of another ex-CIA agent who now works as a part-time consultant to the White House. O'Brien refused to link the committee and the White House directly to what happened, but he says he knows more than he's telling, and he says he feels he is on the right track in suing the committee as a co-conspirator with the five men. Carl Stern, NBC News, Washington. That was an NBC News report at the time, and you can tell it's very brief and kind of interesting, but no one was really taking the Democrats seriously here, including late-night hosts who were actually making fun of the Democrats. Uh, David Brinkley, the host of David Brinkley's journal on NBC um, in 1972, said the Democrats were doing this because they were, quote, $9 million in debt, end quote. Uh, then he went on to say that he then he went on to say that they only sued for a million dollars. He goes to say, quote, it is not clear why if the Democrats are intent on suing, why they didn't sue for the full amount. They need nine million dollars and try to force the Republicans to bail them out of debt. It is one way of getting even, end quote. The lawsuit filed by the Democrats uh, was mostly seen as a joke at the time. Oh, Democrats, you're you're just political political fighting here. Political revenge. That is what most people saw this as. But the Democrats were adamant about keeping this in the spotlight here. For instance, when they saw or, or learned something new, they would amend their lawsuit that would result in that being given to a judge and accessible on the public docket. Therefore, it would provide news reporters with new information about the lawsuit. It would also keep the acknowledgement of that break-in at the DNC headquarters in June of 1972 in the public eye. And because of the Democrats, this story would no longer need amending lawsuits to keep it alive. Herbert Kalmbach uh, was Richard Nixon's personal lawyer. And after Nixon won the 1968 presidential election, Kalmbach rejected an offer uh, to be the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. Instead, he took a job making money as a real estate attorney. 
And he represented corporate clients who hoped to essentially cash in on his personal relationship with President Richard Nixon. And Kalmbach was in charge of handling Nixon's incoming tax returns and also matters involving his, his home in San Clemente, California. Now, Nixon considered Kalmbach to be a trustworthy, discreet, and close confidant. In fact, he had so much esteem for his loyal friend and personal lawyer uh, that he chose him to be the deputy finance chairman of the 1972 election campaign. And this is where the story gets really, really good. After that suspicious break-in at the DNC, at DNC headquarters in June of 1972, Herbert Kalmbach, Richard Nixon's personal lawyer, was instructed to pay off the Watergate burglars. And he was supposed to do this through a bagman named Alan, excuse me, named Anthony Yuliskiewicz, a former New York City police detective who was on the Nixon campaign's private payroll. And in that particular payoff, it was unclear if the president was actually involved in it, but there were other hush money schemes that Mr. Kalmbach participated in as well. We also know that he uh, essentially was a part of a secret $500,000 uh, financial sabotage against financial sabotage scheme against the Democrats. Also, he funneled $220,000 to pay off these seven burglars implicated in the Watergate break-in. Then he donated $100,000 to a campaign that was ultimately successful, unsuccessful, excuse me, in defeating independent segregationist Alabama Governor George Wallace. And it did not end there. Uh, in fact, this continued. There were more instances uh, where this transpired. For instance, uh, Sam Roberts reports at the New York Times, quote, In another episode after withdrawing $100,000 earmarked for the anti-Wallace effort for a safe deposit box, he had hand-delivered the cash to a stranger in the lobby of the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York, identifying himself as Mr. Jensen of Detroit. End quote. <laughs> this was just not the case. This was not Mr. Jensen of Detroit. This was Herbert Kalmbach of Newport Beach, California. So, just wow. Uh, <laughs> in, in, uh, on August 1st, 1972, the Washington Post published a bombshell article. Uh, this was the headline, quote, Bug Suspects Got Campaign Funds, end quote. Then on September 15th, 1972, uh, President Richard Nixon was meeting with the famous singer and songwriter Ray Charles in the Oval Office when breaking news emerged. It was reported that seven men, including two former White House officials, were indicted for the Watergate break-in. Uh, this was reporting from the New York Times in September of 1972, quote, two former White House aides and the five men seized by the police inside the Watergate complex on June 17th were indicted today on charges of conspiring to break into Democratic National Headquarters at the complex, end quote. So things were just not going well for Nixon at this point. Then, 29 days before the presidential election that year in 1972, the Washington Post broke a bombshell story. Here it is reported by ABC News at the time. Officials had ordered a major political campaign of spying and sabotage against the Democrats to reassure President Nixon's re-election this year. And as part of that campaign, said the Post, the Democratic National Headquarters was bugged with electronic surveillance equipment last June. That was the so-called Watergate affair. But according to the newspaper, that was only one phase of a much more ambitious effort by the Republican hierarchy. Details from ABC's Sam Donaldson. 
The Post says the espionage operation on the president's behalf was called the Offensive Security Program. It began in 1971, according to the newspaper, and was aimed first at the major contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination. Its goal, infiltration and subversion. The Post reports that a former Treasury Department lawyer, Donald Segretti, attempted to recruit at least three persons as agent provocateurs. That was an ABC News report on October 10, 1972, when the Washington Post broke that bombshell story. As I said, th th this was just 29 days before the presidential election, meaning that at that point, that Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern and the Republican uh, Richard Nixon were fiercely campaigning. So, bad time for any article to come out making you look terrible or corrupt. Uh, nevertheless, Nixon got reelected, and the Watergate scandal did not go away. If you didn't pay attention to it before the election, you most definitely were now. During the first month of his second term in office, the five men who broke into the DNC's headquarters uh, pled guilty to conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping. By April that year in 1973, two of Nixon's most prominent White House aides were forced to resign. John Dean, the White House counsel, was fired. On May 18, 1973, the Saturday Night Massacre transpired. President Richard Nixon ordered the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, to fire the Watergate Special Prosecutor, Archibald Cox, and he failed to comply, and he resigned in protest. Nixon kept going down the line line of succession in the, D in the Justice Department until he could finally find someone named Robert Bork to carry out his, his, his order. This caused panic, enragement, and intimidation. This was reporting from NBC News. Good evening. The country tonight is in the midst of what may be the most serious constitutional crisis in its history. The president has fired the special Watergate prosecutor, Archibald Cox. Because of the president's action, the attorney general has resigned. Elliot Richardson has quit, saying he cannot carry out Mr. Nixon's instructions. Richardson's deputy, William Ruckelshaus, has been fired. Ruckelshaus refused in a moment of constitutional drama to obey a presidential order to fire the special Watergate prosecutor. And half an hour after the special Watergate prosecutor had been fired, agents of the FBI, acting at the direction of the White House, sealed off the offices of the special prosecutor, the offices of the attorney general, and the offices of the deputy attorney general. Six FBI agents present, impeding our operations right now. All of this adds up to a totally unprecedented situation, a grave and profound crisis in which the president has set himself against his own attorney general and the Department of Justice. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Quote, nothing like this has ever happened before, end quote. So it was, it was diametrically unprecedented. By May of 1974, uh, the House Judiciary Committee began impeachment proceedings against President Richard Nixon. Also, they started um, the Senate Watergate Committee. They started holding hearings and everything. It was getting real. It was getting really, really intense. Nixon kept on fighting, refusing to hand over secret tapes to the Watergate special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski. Then the Supreme Court got involved, and then they ruled unanimously that, hey, Nixon, hand it over. You must hand over these tapes. And after that, uh, Nixon's team, essentially, they delayed, but they eventually did hand over those tapes. In June of 1974, the House Judiciary Committee passed three articles of impeachment against President Richard Nixon for obstruction of justice, misuse of power, and contempt of Congress. 
So those are the three articles of impeachment, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. Those articles were approved and sent to the House floor for a full vote. But that never happened. Because in August of that year, many Republican senators were calling for Richard Nixon to be impeached. And of course, he did not get impeached, nor did that, nor did those three articles of impeachment go to the House floor for a full vote. Why? Because Richard Nixon resigned under all that pressure. He resigned. Members of his own party were calling him out. Members of his own party were vehemently condemning his behavior. After the president's resignation, remember that Democratic lawsuit filed against Nixon's campaign? Well, they won. And on that day, on the day that Nixon resigned the presidency and Gerald Ford became the 37th president of the United States, on that day, the committee to re-elect the president silently paid the Democrats $775,000. Also, after Nixon's resignation, it was time for the midterm elections. And there was a clear message. There was a clear message. If you supported Nixon, you were a staunch supporter of Nixon, well... You didn't perform so well that night. 33 of the 38 members on the Judiciary Committee ran for re-election. All became highly visible, as we all know, during the summer, during the time that the committee's hearings were televised over the impeachment of the president. Of the 33 who ran again, six were considered in tight races. Five of those six are Republicans. Wiley, Maine was beaten in Iowa's 6th District. Charles Sandman, one of Nixon's most vocal supporters, lost in New Jersey's 2nd District. Joseph Marazzini, another Republican from New Jersey, and another staunch Nixon partisan, was easily defeated. In Indiana, David Dennis, who also opposed impeachment in the original voting, lost to Philip Sharp. That was reporting from NBC News at the time about how some members who were on the House Judiciary Committee, some Republican members, lost their seats because they were staunch supporters of Richard Nixon. Back then, there was a very clear message. If you were against Nixon as a Republican during Watergate, you received a pat on the back in adulation. If you stood for Nixon during Watergate, despite some, un- despite the unsettling details that later emerged, well, your political future was essentially over. Now here we are, 47 years later, with a very different Republican Party. Yesterday, former President Donald John Trump was acquitted for incitement of insurrection, a serious, serious article of impeachment. The violent insurrection transpired at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th during the certification of the presidential election. I recently appeared on my friend Brendan's show about this. It's called Brendan Brown's Collection of Facts and Theories podcast show. And if you are mystified by this impeachment process, by the impeachment trial that has just concluded, go check it out. It's a great episode. This historic vote uh, came after, this historic vote to acquit the former president came after a a powerful presentation by the House impeachment managers. While making their case, they unveiled evidence, new evidence that has never been seen before. We saw a video of former Vice President Mike Pence being evacuated from the Senate chamber to head to safety. We also heard recordings of Capitol Police officers under stress, uh, essentially as the as the insurrectionists and as these domestic terrorists were continuing to push through the gates and attack them. We also saw a video of Capitol Police officer Eugene Goodman running past Republican Senator Mitt Romney, alerting him to get to safety. There was also body cam footage from a police officer and other elected officials also running as well. Um, here are some highlights from the House impeachment manager's presentation this week. On the floor with lead manager Raskin. 
like every one of you, I was evacuated as this violent mob stormed the Capitol's gates. What you experienced that day, what we experienced that day, what our country experienced that day, is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. And yet that is the rule that President Trump asks you to adopt. I urge you, we urge you, to decline his request, to vindicate the Constitution, to let us try this case. The consequences of his conduct were devastating on every level. Police officers were left overwhelmed, unprotected. Congress had to be evacuated. Our staff barricaded in this building, calling their families to say goodbye. Some of us, like Mr. Raskin, had children here. And these people in this building, some of whom were on the FBI's watch list, took photos, stole laptops, destroyed precious statues, including one of John Lewis, desecrated the statue of a recently deceased member of Congress who stood for nonviolence. This was devastating. And the world watched us. And the world is still watching us to see what we will do this day and will know what we did this day 100 years from now. Trump knew exactly what he was doing in inciting the January 6th mob. Exactly. He had just seen how easily his words and actions inspired violence in Michigan. He sent a clear message to his supporters. He encouraged planning and conspiracies to take over Capitol buildings and threaten public officials who refused to bow down to his political will. Is there any chance Donald Trump was surprised by the results of his own incitement? Do what Tom Paine told us to do. Use our common sense. The sense we have in common as citizens. If we don't draw the line here, what's next? What makes you think the nightmare with Donald Trump and his lawmaking and violent mobs is over? If we let him get away with it, and then it comes to your state capitol, or it comes back here again, what are we going to say? These prior acts of incitement cast a harsh light on Trump's obvious intent, obvious intent, his unavoidable knowledge of the consequences of his incitement, the unavoidable knowledge of the consequences of his incitement, and the clear foreseeability of the violent harm that he unleashed on our people and our republic. January 6th was not some unexpected radical break from his normal law-abiding and peaceful disposition. This was his state of mind. This was his essential MO. 
He knew that egged on by his tweets, his lies, and his promise of a wild time in Washington to guarantee his grip on power, his most extreme followers would show up bright and early, ready to attack, ready to engage in violence, ready to fight like hell for their hero. Just like they'd answered his call in Michigan. President Trump has said over and over his supporters are loyal. In his own words, his supporters are the most loyal that we've seen in our country's history. And he knew that his most hardcore supporters were willing to direct violence at elected officials, indeed to attack and lay siege to a Capitol building. And he knew they would be ready to heed his call on January 6th to stop the steal by using violence to block the peaceful transfer of power in the United States. He knew they were coming. He brought them here and he welcomed them with open arms. We hear you and love you from the Oval Office. My dear colleagues, is there any political leader in this room who believes that if he is ever allowed by the Senate to get back into the Oval Office, Donald Trump would stop inciting violence to get his way? Would you bet the lives of more police officers on that? Would you bet the safety of your family on that? Would you bet the future of your democracy on that? President Trump declared his conduct totally appropriate. So, if he gets back into office and it happens again, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Quote, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. End quote. That was Congressman Jamie Raskin. The first person you heard there was Congresswoman, uh, Congressman uh, Joe Neguse. Then you heard Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. <clears throat> Those are just some of the House managers making their compelling case. Some Just some of the House impeachment managers making their compelling case in the Senate there. Now that former President Donald Trump has been acquitted, uh, this means that he can run for office as president or any elected official again, excuse me, or any elected office again. If the Senate voted to convict President, a former President Trump, then a majority vote would have disqualified him from holding public office ever again. As I said, um, the House impeachment managers made a compelling case, while the former president's defense team essentially diverted attention to other things and brought up things that were irrelevant. The vote yesterday was 57 to 43. Um, that means all 50 Democrats in the Senate voted for a conviction, along with seven Republicans who sided with them. The Washington Post encapsulates Republican senators' vote in a pretty stark in pretty stark terms. Quote, Trump left them to die. 43 Senate Republicans still licked his boots. End quote. Five people died at the Capitol on January 6th that day. After the president incited an insurrection against the United States government. I mean, it's just absolutely horrendous. The message that this sends to our allies all over the world... What former President Trump did was deplorable and dangerous for our Democratic Republic. The vote to acquit him means that he can run for office again, and who knows, maybe he'll try it again and be successful. That would effectively reinstall him in office and keep him in there for a second term, or even worse, for life. 
and I'm not being hyperbolic about this. I mean, after the election, I started reading quotes from Timothy Snyder and other uh, and other officials who were essentially just saying, hey, guys, you may want to watch out. This could be an attempted coup. And <laughs> this could happen again. But let's say Donald Trump does not run for office again. Well, maybe a future president who wants to be like Donald Trump or who, who, who's even smarter or more clever than Donald Trump may want to stay in office after losing an election. They could just emulate what Trump did and say, and, 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 and he or she could say, well, he tried it. Why can't I? And there were no repercussions for him, so why can't I do it? This vote to acquit him sends a very, very loud message. The, the vote to acquit him does not only excuse his behavior, but also sets a very dangerous precedent for any other future president who wants to try this in the future. Ultimately, when it came to the vote, only seven Republicans could show political courage. Those Republicans were Senators um, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and Pat Toomey. Because they showed political courage in the new iteration of the Republican Party, that means political retribution. This happened right after uh, the impeachment trial as well. Many of the Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, including Liz Cheney, were censured back home, back at home, uh, back home by their uh, state's Republican Party. Unlike the 1970s, when you stood up against Richard Nixon during Watergate, uh, there is no pat on the back or adulation for political courage this time. Just vociferous condemnation. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy was censured by the Louisiana Republican, excuse me, was censured by the Louisiana Republican Party today. According to CNBC News, the same is expected to happen to Republican Senator Ben Sass, who voted to convict Trump yesterday. After the vote to acquit former President Donald Trump, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made a compelling speech on the Senate floor. We saw it. We heard it. We lived it. This was the first presidential impeachment trial in history in which all senators were not only judges and jurors, but witnesses to the constitutional crime that was committed. Here's what the Republican leader of the Senate said. The mob that perpetrated the, quote, failed insurrection, unquote, was on January 6th was, quote, provoked by President Trump. You want another word for provoke? How about in sight? Yet still, still, the vast majority of the Senate Republican caucus, including the Republican leader, voted to acquit former President Trump, signing their names in the columns of history alongside his name forever. January 6th will live as a day of infamy in the history of the United States of America. The failure to convict Donald Trump will live as a vote of infamy in the history of the United States Senate. Quote, the failure to convict Donald Trump will live as a vote of infamy in the history of the United States Senate. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking yesterday after the Senate voted to acquit former President Donald Trump. 
Now that this trial has concluded, the president is still the former president is still culpable for many other crimes he committed in office. The attorney general in D.C. is looking into potentially prosecuting Trump for inciting violence on January 6th. That is currently still under investigation. Another crime you will remember is when President Trump called the Georgia Secretary of State and asked for just enough votes so that he could win. That phone call is now under investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney. The newly elected Fannie Willis is now looking into that phone call. Another person who is under investigation by her office is Senator Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who illegally pressured the Georgia Secretary of State about mail-in ballots. Trump is also still under investigation for many other crimes, including under the state of New York. So these are still open possibilities for criminal prosecution here. There is one last point I want to make on this note. The vote to acquit former President Donald Trump may have political consequences, may or may not have political consequences, given the current iteration of our political system, for the Republican senators who decided to do so. But it will also have another consequence for many Americans. NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss wrote on Twitter yesterday, quote, every democracy-loving American will pay for today's verdict in the future. End quote. We are a democratic republic, but over the years we have weakened, our institutions have been subverted, and the rule of law has been attacked. If we want to truly remain a democratic republic, we must do better in holding public officials accountable for their actions. Because excusing deplorable behavior like inciting an insurrection against the United States government deteriorates our democratic system and creates something incredibly dangerous. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States, we see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm. When neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. Welcome back. Here in the United States, coronavirus cases are continuing to drop, but please stay alert and continue to wear your mask. Earlier this week, also, the CDC um, reported that the CDC essentially um, published their guidance on, reo on, public, on reopening public schools and getting kids back to school as fast as possible. Also this week, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, warned states against dropping mask mandates um, as the coronavirus is still here and as these COVID-19 mutations are still taking place. Uh, this is reporting from Emma Newberg at CNBC.com. Quote, Dr. Rochelle Lewinsky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said Sunday it's too early for states to lift mask-wearing mandates, given the high number of daily coronavirus cases and deaths in the United States. Quote, we still have 100,000 cases a day. We still have somewhere between 1,500 and 3,500 deaths per day, Walensky said during an interview on CBS's Face the Nation, quote, and yet we see some communities relaxing 
uh, excuse me, we see some communities relaxing some of their mitigation strategies. We are nowhere out of the woods, end quote. As the spread of the virus in the United States slows and the vaccine rollout quickens, states have started loosening restrictions. Republican governors in Montana and Iowa lifted statewide mask requiring requirements this month. North Dakota's mask mandate expired in January. In New York, Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo recently permitted indoor dining at 25% capacity despite the high risk of contagion in indoor spaces at open up stadiums and opened up stadiums and arenas at limited capacity. The United States is reporting more than 93,000 cases a day on average, down 22% from a week ago, and more than 3,000 deaths daily, up 4% from a week ago, according to CNBC, according to a CNBC analysis of data from the John Hopkins University. More than 480,000 Americans are dead. More than 27 million Americans have been infected from the coronavirus. This is still very prevalent here in the United States. This is still a serious and lethal concern, serious and lethal issue. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden visited the National Institutes of Health. He did a little tour there, along with Dr. Fauci and the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Jeff Zients. Uh, the president also, um, at, at the National Institutes of Health, he also excoriated his predecessor, former President Donald Trump, for failing on the vaccine rollout and essentially leaving the, the Biden administration with a catastrophe. We still want, we know, we still have a long way to go. It's no secret that the vaccination program was in much worse shape than my team and I anticipated. We were under the impression and been told that we had a lot more resources than we did when we came into office. We've only been here three weeks, but we've learned a great deal in those three weeks. While scientists did their job in discovering vaccines in record time, my predecessor, be very blunt about it, did not do his job in getting ready for the massive challenge of vaccinating hundreds of millions of Americans. He didn't order enough vaccines. He didn't mobilize enough people to administer the shots. He didn't set up a federal vaccine centers where eligible people could go and get their shots. When I became president three weeks ago, America had no plan to vaccinate most of the country. It's, it was a big mess. That's going to take time to fix, to be blunt with you. I promised when I did my inaugural address that I'll always be straight with you, give it to you straight from the shoulder. I will not walk away when we make a mistake. I'll acknowledge it and tell you the truth. We started on day one. We won't have everything fixed for a while, but we're going to fix it. But we need everyone to mask up. And by the way, I know it's a pain in the neck, but it's a patriotic responsibility. We're in the middle of a war with this virus. It's a patriotic responsibility. Not only if you care about your family, you care about your fellow Americans. You realize more people have died in the last 12 months, in the last 12 months, than died in all four years in World War II? All four years. That was President Joe Biden speaking at the National Institutes of Health earlier this week. Just recently, Dr. Anthony Fauci, our nation's top infectious disease expert, says that all Americans can essentially, if you want to get a vaccine, you can get a vaccine by April. You can get the coronavirus vaccine by April. 
I know most Americans are definitely looking forward to that. Even as the situation here in the United States is getting better, and even though the situation here in the United States is improving, still be on alert as the coronavirus pandemic is still prevalent, as these coronavirus mutations are still prevalent. We are still in this pandemic here. We are still in this situation. Do not let your guard down because cases will skyrocket. They will go back up exponentially. If we want to remain where we are now in the midst of this pandemic with cases still down and deaths, are, everything is just dropping. If we want to remain at this current rate, we must remain vigilant. We must not let our guard down and become complacent. That will let the virus take over again. We'll be right back. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Welcome back. We are continuing to follow reports this week of massive winter storms almost just all over the country. Um, specifically in North, we are starting to see these pop up in the South as well. This is reporting from the Washington Post, quote, Historic Arctic outbreak brings dangerous cold, snow, and ice to central and southern U.S. This is the lead, quote, A historic Arctic outbreak continues to bring a bone-chilling deep freeze to the central United States as the coldest air in generations plunges south and is accomplished by snow and ice all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Some cities will see their lowest temperatures in more than a century as high-impact winter storms roll across the country. Temperatures about 50 degrees below average occupy an enormous swath of the central United States, stretching from the Rockies to the Mississippi Valley and the Midwest. At least 15 states could see temperatures of minus 10 or colder, while lows near the U.S.-Canada border flirt with minus 40 degrees. More than 50 million people could see temperatures dip below zero during the next several days as the record-setting dip freeze envelopes the country. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a state disaster declaration where every one of the state's 254 counties was under a winter storm watch, warning or advisory leading up to the approaching storms, end quote. Um, I have been following what's going on in Texas, specifically because I do have some family there, um, and I have been following that situation there about this, this massive winter storm in Texas, all 254 counties. Uh, President Joe Biden has actually just issued an emergency declaration for all of those counties in Texas about those winter storms. Uh, this was reporting last night from NBC News about the winter storms that we're seeing not just in Texas, but all over the country. Tonight, a dangerous blast of winter weather gripping the country. Parts of Washington state waking up to heavy snow and icy conditions. Yep. SUV. State troopers responding to hundreds of spinouts and stranded cars. Overnight, a snowy Seattle went from scenic to scary for unprepared drivers. The storm forcing mass vaccination sites in the Pacific Northwest to close today. For days, the winds were so fierce in Northwest Oregon, they knocked some people off their feet. Meanwhile, in places like Virginia and North Carolina, 
crippling ice cut off power to hundreds of thousands. A mix of freezing rain and sleet stretching across the mid-Atlantic. The freeze-over coating trees, cars and power lines. In Nashville, an icy interstate triggered a massive pileup, sending at least eight to the hospital. Plunging temperatures are making matters worse, especially for essential workers in Billings, Montana, braving the sub-zero chill. I am on an all-walking route. I have about 15 miles or more. I'm out there for at least seven hours. Texas, still shaken by this week's deadly interstate crash, is on alert this weekend for blizzard conditions and brutal cold. Tonight, air travel already disrupted in Dallas-Fort Worth. The governor issuing a disaster declaration before the next storm charges through. And Kathy Park joins us from Central Park, where, Kathy, they're expecting even more snow. Jose, that's right. We have seen a lot of snow this winter. We are still digging out from the last nor'easter. So far this season, New York City has doubled its average snowfall totals. Jose. Once again, that was reporting from NBC News last night about these major winter storms we are seeing all over the country at this point. In lots of parts of the country, we are seeing these winter storms in the central and southern United States. We will keep an eye on this story. We're going to have more reporting on that um, next weekend. Stay with us here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. We've got more to get to. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part on the home front on the front lines to lend a helping hand and hold each other up we are resilient vigilant and we'll get through this because we're better together even if we're a little farther apart Welcome back. Yesterday, the first member of the Biden administration resigned. White House Deputy Press Secretary J, excuse me, T.J. Ducklow resigned. The White House Deputy Press Secretary resigned. He is a former campaign aide for the Biden administration for the Biden campaign. He apologized to a reporter and was given a one-week suspension. But uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said his resignation was accepted on Saturday. Um, he he is the first person in the Biden administration to resign. Uh, President Joe Biden on Inauguration Day said that anyone who uh, treated others with disrespect in the White House, he would fire them on the spot. The first action taken by the Biden administration did not essentially, essentially it did not uh, put his words into actions. Instead, he was only suspended for one week without pay, but that has now been cut short. He has just tendered his resignation. Uh, Michael Shear is reporting at the New York Times, quote, T.J. Ducklow, a deputy White House press secretary, uh, secretary, resigned on Saturday after reports that he used abusive and sexist language with a female reporter working on an article about his romantic relationship with a journalist from another publication. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, annoyed, excuse me, announced the resignation in a statement on Saturday evening, a day after saying that Mr. Ducklow would be suspended without pay for a week. Quote, we accepted the resignation of T.J. Ducklow after a discussion with him this evening, Mr. S- Miss, excuse me, Miss Saki said, noting that Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, agreed with the decision. Quote, we are committed to striving every day to meet the standards set by the president in treating others with dignity and respect, with civility and with a value for others through our words and our actions. 
end quote. Once again, this is reporting from the New York Times from New York Times reporter Michael Shear about the Biden administration's first person to resign. Uh, White House Deputy Press Secretary T.J. Declo has resigned. We'll be right back with the last new. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. That's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Welcome back. Today is Valentine's Day, but it also marks the three-year anniversary of the shooting that transpired at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in February of 2018. 17 people were shot dead that day. This is reporting from WPLG Local 10 News in Florida. A year in a row, Valentine's Day is a very difficult day, a reminder to Parkland families of the tragedy that claimed the lives of so many people forever changed. 17 students and teachers, you see them all here on this board, were killed in a mass shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School. Today, South Florida is honoring their memory with tributes to remember the fallen eagles. Local 10's Trent Kelly is live in Fort Lauderdale this morning. Trent, tell us everything you see there and what's going on right now. Well, Alex, Andrew, any moment now, the city of Fort Lauderdale is expected to begin this special remembrance ceremony here at Esplanade Park. You can see people gathering as we speak. This will be followed by a moment of silence to be held right at 10.17 a.m., a symbolic time, of course, chosen to honor those 17 lives that were lost exactly three years ago today. A very solemn day indeed across all of South Florida. Now, we should tell you that today's event comes after the school district held their own remembrance ceremonies back on Friday. Students across several schools here in Broward County, they took a moment to stand in silence as they remembered the victims. Superintendent Robert Runcie also encouraging kids to channel that emotion by taking part in a series of service projects. One of those projects taking place with a supply drive for first responders over at South Broward High. Meantime, several family members of those who were killed that day have embarked on their own project, led by Manuel Oliver, who lost his son Joaquin. They created a series of these so-called shame cards, which they do plan to send to Congress. Now, their goal with those cards is to call out lawmakers for not taking any further action on gun control. That, of course, is an issue that is very important to them after the events that took place three years ago today. Back out here live at Esplanade Park. Again, this ceremony just now getting underway. That'll be followed by that moment of silence at 1017. This one of several events taking place across South Florida today for a full list of those remembrance ceremonies taking place. You can follow me on social media. I've got a list, a link posted right now at Trent Kelly WPLG. But for now, we are live here in Fort Lauderdale. Trent Kelly, Local 10 News. That was reporting from WPLG Local 10 News out of Florida. We will never forget those 17 lives that were lost on that tragic day. Absolutely horrific. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. Make sure to share this podcast with your family and friends if you enjoyed it. You can also consider subscribing. Have a fantastic day, and I will see you very shortly with part two of this episode this Sunday.